Our most gracious Father, we thank you that in your goodness you have brought us together as not only separate individuals, but as a family, a family redeemed by the blood of Christ, a family united by the work of Christ. And our most gracious Father, thank you for your word. Your word is your power. It's, it's the power of God on, on, in our minds, in our spirits, on, the, on, on our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that your word would do your work today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us to give us understanding and to, to give us comfort, to give us conviction, to give us correction where we need it, that we would grow not only in our understanding of you, but in our desire to live a life that is pleasing to you, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 16. Over the course of the last at least 20 years, there have been some seriously drastic cultural changes, and I don't think that there's anyone among us who would deny that there have been all these changes that we've seen unfolding uh, before our eyes, that ch changes that we've experienced uh, in various ways, but especially, I would say, with technology and the way that technology has ushered in this, uh, this age of information, an age in which all of the information in the world can be in your phone, in the palm of your hand. And perhaps it's coincidental, or, or maybe not, that as technology has increased and played an increasingly larger and larger role in our lives, the number of studies and books on finding happiness have also increased drastically just in the last 20 or 30 years. When I was getting my bachelor's degree in psychology in the early 90s, uh, there were hundreds of studies being done every year related to the subject of happiness. And if that sounds like a lot, uh, and, and maybe it is, uh, but if that sounds like a lot, consider that by the year 2014, there were over 10,000 studies on happiness being conducted per year, compared to a few hundred per year in the early 90s. The pop psychology magazine Psychology Today reports that in year 2000, there were about 50 books a year being published on the subject of happiness. But by 2008, that number jumped from 50 to about 4,000 per year. And that number has remained relatively stable ever since that time. That's a lot of books being written about the subject of happiness. And if you consider that 2008 was, what, 11 years ago, um, 11 times 4,000, that's, that's 44,000 books on happiness. That's a lot of books. According to Google Analytics, based on what people are searching for in the Google search engine, the interest in happiness has actually more than tripled since the mid-2000s. Now all this just goes to show that we as Americans are more interested in, if not completely consumed by, the pursuit of personal happiness more so than perhaps we've ever been before. And yet, what we see when we survey society as a whole uh, is that this frenzied pursuit of happiness has not delivered on its promises. 
People are suffering from depression at an increasing rate. Scientists have actually found a correlation between pursuing happiness and feeling correspondingly miserable. In other words, as one author puts it, quote, chasing happiness actually makes people unhappy, end quote. And I can't help but think about this and think that the issue is not that there's necessarily anything wrong uh, or dangerous even with seeking happiness um, or that seeking happiness has to lead to misery. Rather, I think the misery is increased in pursuing happiness in all of the wrong things. So coming to the realization that this world, that everything that this world has to offer uh, for true happiness, it's just one dead-end road after another. Yeah, that's pretty depressing. See, there, there isn't a, a human-authored book in the entire world that can rightfully promise us happiness. Such promises will fall short. But God's promises never do. So today we come to Psalm 16, which is one of the most important psalms out of all of the psalms, one that contains a very specific promise by God and one which we know is true, one that he followed through with, one that he held, one that he fulfilled. It's a, it's a messianic psalm that we're going to be looking to. In other words, it's a psalm that's written about the Messiah, uh, about Jesus, and even though it was written many centuries before Jesus, it, uh, it nevertheless contained a promise about his life and about his ministry. And that promise is this, that he would be resurrected, that he would die, but that his body would not undergo decay. Now, the importance of this specific psalm and the promises that it contains are evident when we read through the book of Acts and we see the apostles preaching the resurrection of Christ from this very psalm. Listen very carefully to what Peter said as he quoted verses 8 to 11 of this psalm as he preached on Pentecost. He said this in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 28. Peter says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my flesh was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now what we have to understand is that David, or that Peter, uh, is talking about David here. This is something that David wrote. He says, David says of him. So the question then becomes, who is him? Who is Peter telling us David was writing about? And of course, the answer is Jesus. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that David wrote this about Jesus. A very important principle of interpretation is that the New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament. It's, it's not the other way around. You don't see the, the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. You see the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. So what Peter's saying here is that David couldn't have written this about himself, about David, because David died, and he stayed dead, and his body did decay. Like everyone else, his body decomposed and rotted over time. But listen to what he says a couple of verses later, verses 30 to 32. He says, And so, 
Because he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So, as Peter preached this, to thousands of people on Pentecost, we know that 3,000 people were converted. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ when they saw that this prophetic verse from Psalm 16 applied exclusively to Jesus. So Paul also preached from the psalm on more than one occasion when he was speaking to the Jews in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. He declared this to them in verses 32 to 37. He said, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, and this is where he quotes Psalm 16, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So what I want us to all see as we enter into our study of this psalm is that Paul and Peter both interpreted this psalm the same way. They interpreted it understanding that David couldn't have been writing about himself. He couldn't possibly have been referring to himself here since he himself did die and his body did decay. But because Jesus was risen on the third day after his death, his body did not undergo decay. Therefore, there's only one person in all of human history that David could have possibly been referring to here, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's good for us to have this understanding as we enter into our study of this psalm because it helps us to see what is going on in this psalm and what this psalm is really all about. David is not only telling us about what will happen to Christ, but he's also giving us a glimpse into Jesus' heart and into his mind. As David writes from a first-person perspective here, his own thoughts and his own words are uh, prophetically mingled and intertwined with the thoughts and words of Jesus. I mean, if there's anyone... Think about it, if there's anyone who had something to be afraid of, it was Jesus. If there's anyone who ever had a reason to feel anxious, it was Jesus. If there's anyone who's ever had a reason to feel miserable, it was Jesus. Who knew that with every single passing moment, he was moving closer and closer to facing death on a cross. But worse than that, every moment he was moving closer and closer to the moment when he would bear the wrath of God in the place of every sinner who would believe in him and who would thereby be redeemed by the shedding of his blood. Every sin of his people would be credited to him. He would own their sin. And in exchange, he would give 
his people his righteousness. But if you think about all the sin of his people that would be laid on Christ, that's a lot of sin. Which means it was a tremendous amount of wrath that he would have to endure. And if anybody, if anybody has ever known how terrifying the wrath of God against even one sin is, it's Jesus. So where did Jesus find the strength to carry on and to abide in the, the will of the Father in light of what would take place on the cross? Where did he find peace and happiness to fill his heart? This psalm helps us to understand the answer to that question. And the Holy Spirit, knowing that there will be times when you and I also feel anxious, when you and I feel fearful or sad, when we feel uncertain about the future, the Holy Spirit has given us this psalm so that we too can find strength, so that we can find peace and blessed happiness in our souls in Christ alone. Do you want to find this peace, this blessed happiness and satisfaction? Of course you do. Of course you do. Does your soul yearn for it? Of course it does. But finding it starts with making a commitment. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 together as we start our study of Psalm 16. Looking at verses 1 to 3. It says, A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Now, we aren't sure exactly what a miktam is. Uh, which is why the translators have kept it in the original Hebrew language. It probably refers to uh, a very specific kind of uh, poem or prayer or uh, or a song. But we are reminded that it's written by uh, that it's a text that's written by David. But just in these first three verses, we see the type of faith, the type of commitment that David had in God. See, he trusted in God to protect him and to provide for him. This is what his entire life was built upon. And it was a solid rock that his life was built upon rather than sinking sand. He didn't have, David didn't have a backup plan. He trusted in God alone. He simply trusted in God entirely. And if that meant that he was done for, if God didn't act, he was good with that. He was okay with that. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God was all-powerful. He knew that God was good. And so he committed himself entirely to God. Look at the second part of verse 1 with me where he writes, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. The Hebrew word for preserve is the same word that could be translated as keep or guard. Uh, as a shepherd, that was David's job as related to the sheep. Uh, when a wild animal, when a predator would come in and, and stalk the sheep of his flock, David's responsibility was to preserve them, was to protect them uh, from any harm. And so we see that David starts this psalm by asking God to be for him what David is for his sheep. And interestingly, 
this first verse, that's the only request, that's the only petition that David offers in this entire psalm. And the basis of David's hope that God would indeed protect him was grounded in the fact that David had taken refuge in God. David had taken refuge in God. When the storms of life were raging, David had a profound sense of security because his ultimate hope, his ultimate trust, was not in himself. His ultimate trust was not in his wisdom, not in his strength, not in his prowess on the battlefield, not in his agility, not in his money, not in his power. His entire hope was entirely in God. God alone was his refuge and strength. But notice also that David doesn't preface this request with something like, if I don't have it within myself, God, you know, will you be there for me? Or, you know, if there's something that's too great for me to handle, God, will you, will you protect me in those times when, if there's something too great? No. That might be what we might expect from somebody like David, uh, because David was such a, a fierce and mighty warrior. Uh, he was feared on the battlefield. He was feared when he sat on his throne. He was the type of guy who could take care of business. He was the type of guy who could handle himself if he needed to. But his first and only option was to trust himself to God's care. God wasn't his second option. God wasn't, he definitely wasn't his last option. God was his first and his only option. David was fully committed to trusting in God for his protection. But that commitment is seen again in verse 2. If you look at verse 2 with me, where he acknowledges a very profound truth. He writes this, he said, says, I said to the Lord, you are my, my Lord. I have no good besides you. Now, as you're looking at your Bible... Uh, there's something very specific that you should notice as you're looking at it. You should see that the first instance of the, uh, of the word Lord is in all capital letters, uh, which means that the Hebrew word here is God's name. Uh, it's Jehovah. It's being translated from Jehovah, the name of God that's derived from Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. That's the, the covenant name of God, which makes it appropriate that David would address him by confessing that there is no good in him, in David, but that anything good about him was due entirely to God. Now the second time, if you're looking at your text, the second time you see the word Lord here, only the first letter is capitalized, which tells us that these are two different Hebrew words. The first one is Jehovah, this one is Adonai, which means master. So taking these two things together, what David is confessing, what David is proclaiming here is that he belongs to Jehovah and that Jehovah owns him. Jehovah is his master. It's vital for us to understand, and, and more importantly than that, to not just understand, but to believe. It's not just intellect, it's our wills that we want to bring into the equation here. We want to believe that God is good. We must believe that God is good, and that on our own, we are not. In fact, there is nothing good about any of us on our own. You and I, on our own, are not capable of producing anything that even comes close to resembling something that is good according to God's standards of what good is. That's why salvation must be entirely of God. 
Because if even one one millionth of one one millionth of a percent of our salvation depended on something about us, nobody would be saved because there is no good in us. And to deny that is to deny what David is saying here, that there's no good within him. Because God is entirely good, we have to understand also that all of his gifts and all of his ways are good. You know those commandments that people are always mocking and ridiculing on the news or wherever you hear people mocking the Bible? Those commandments that they're mocking are actually good because they're from God. And when we don't see His ways as being good, when we don't see that that everything about us is bad and that whatever is good about us is only due to God, when we don't see that only God is good, we won't see that his ways are the only good ways. When we don't see that his ways are good, when people mock them, when they ridicule them, first of all, they're saying that's not the only way. But they're really caught in a rut because they're believing not only that God isn't the only good one, but that there are ways apart from God's ways which are good. In fact, which are better than God's ways. And that is a lie from the deepest, darkest, hottest pit of hell, friends. See, at the root of every sin, if you examine your life, if you think about the sins that you commit, you'll see that at the root of every sin, there is a desire for some other way than God's way. There's a a desire for some good outside of God's will and ways. Maybe that's some kind of personal pleasure. Maybe it's a desire for something that that you don't have, that you think you should have, Maybe it's because God allowed something to happen and you don't think that he should have allowed it to happen. So it's related to justice. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that sin manifests itself, aren't there? But when you boil it down, when you get to the root of the issue, it reduces to seeking or serving something or someone other than God for satisfaction. At the root of every single sin is a desire for some good outside of God's will and God's ways. And that produces an active rejection of God's will and ways, which only renders a person worthy of God's wrath. The question is then, because we've all done this, how do we escape God's wrath against our sin? And the answer is by taking refuge in God alone, just like David did. David committed himself entirely to God because God alone was capable of being his refuge. Only God can save you from God. Only God's grace can save you from God's wrath. So David committed himself entirely to God because he knew that there was no good in himself. But he also knew that God alone is good. That includes who he is, but it also includes all of his ways, all of his commandments. Make no mistake about it, friends. If you don't believe that God is good, even when things are going really bad, if you don't believe that God is good, you will not commit yourself entirely to him and to his ways. Even in our darkest hour, we need to be able to say, just like Jesus did, Not my will, but yours be done. So both David's and Jesus' commitment to God and his ways led to a commitment 
to and a, and a love for God's people. Look what David says next in verse 3. He says, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Now I have to wonder, what does a Roman Catholic do with this, with this reference to saints? Because see, Roman Catholics have this idea that to be a saint, you have to first die. But David is very clearly saying here, they're in the earth. They're, they're, they're walking around us. A saint is just another word used in the Bible to refer to somebody who is redeemed. Here's what the Bible teaches, friends. If you love God, you will also love his people. Let me say that again. If you love God, you will also love his people. Think about the people that you have maybe encountered who claim to love God and yet they say, I don't need church. I I don't like Christians. See, because they don't love Christians, what do they do? They don't go to church. They stay away from church altogether. This is one of the greatest injuries, by the way, that technology has rendered to our society today, and that is that many people don't go to church, but instead what they do is they stay home and they live stream a service or they listen to the recording of a sermon, and they're convinced that it's really the same thing as going to church. No, it's not. It's not even in the same ballpark. It's not even close to being the same thing. Anyone who believes that listening to a sermon online is the same as going to church is absolutely delusional. It's not even close. Let me start with this. How can you even fulfill any of the one another commands by listening to a sermon online? The truth is you can't. Who's, who's going to hold you accountable for walking in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you have been called? Who's going to hold you accountable if you're live streaming from home instead of going to church? Now, I'm not saying that someone is necessarily not a Christian if they don't go to church. Some people can't go to church, and, and I get that. I, I am very sympathetic to that reality. What I'm talking about is the person who chooses not to go. For the person who's able to go but chooses not to, at best, at the very best, they are living in ongoing, unrepentant sin. If you love God, you will also love His people, which means you'll desire to gather with His people, period. Think about it this way. What would you guys think about a a guy who says, I love my wife, but I really don't feel the need to see her or with her or spend any time with her you'd say you got to be kidding right you say you're, you're being funny right exactly that's the point and so the person who doesn't love God's people what's the necessary conclusion about their claim to love God it's false Listen to what 1 John says. 1 John 4, 8 says this. It says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So for, for both David and Jesus, their love for and their commitment to God led to their love and their commitment to his people, the saints. And this leads us to the second sec- section of our passage in which David expresses his contentment in God. Now we, we need to see the, the, the correlation here. Con- commitment to God leads to contentment in God. Look at verses 4 to 8 with me. 
It says, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So because of David's commitment to God, his faith in God, he refused to profane his own lips by even speaking the names of these false gods or participating in the idolatry of the masses who were around him. If you want to know where to find or how to find peace and contentment, it is found in God. And God alone, it's not found in idols. Which is to say, you can't be happy. You can't have this peace and contentment if you're trying to find peace and happiness in God plus something. In God and something else that the world has to offer. No, friends, that is simply a recipe for absolute misery. See, many people walk in a way that declares their desire to have the benefits of walking with God, but they also want the freedom to live their lives however they personally see fit. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If you want peace and happiness in God, which is the only place that it's found, if you want the contentment in God that both David and Jesus had, It starts with refusing to straddle the proverbial fence. You need both feet firmly fixed on one side or the other. Choose whom you will serve. You need to see that the Lord Jehovah here, the Lord Jehovah is David's portion in life and he's ours as well. And if you straddle the fence, you won't get the benefits or the blessings of either side. What David means here is that he's content with whatever, he sa- with whatever he has because he recognizes that everything he has was given to him by God. That's why he says, the portion of my inheritance in my cup, you support my lot. God protected him. That's what we saw in verses 1 and 2. But David also realized that it was God who provided for him everything that he had. It was all from God's hand. And when we come to terms with this concept, contentment is within our grasp. That's exactly why Paul would say to the Philippians, he said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want you to see something there. He says, if you make your requests known to God, you've got the peace. You've got the peace. Not that you've even seen God answer these prayers yet. You've only made them known to God. And this peace will be with you. He goes on to write, Paul goes on to write, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What was the secret? What was the secret that he's talking about? How did he find contentment in every circumstance? 
He tells us, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that verse, that verse sometimes makes me cringe. Because we've probably all seen it. People abuse, twist and abuse this verse so badly. It's probably the most misunderstood, misapplied verse of our time. You'll see football players use it in, term, in relation to their ability to make a tackle or, or to run really fast. I mean, what irony it is that people would think that it means the same as you can do whatever you set your mind to because Jesus is on your side I mean, that's, if you think about what, that, what that's saying, it's really an expression not of contentment, but of discontentment. It's a desire to do and to be more. But Paul's saying that he was content because Christ would see him through any and every circumstance. See, the cure for discontentment is not to do and be more. The cure for discontentment is to trust Christ. David, Paul, and, and Jesus, they, they all knew that whatever they had was provided by God who is capable of giving whatever he knows to be to the greatest benefit for his children. And so, David and, and, and Paul and, and, and Jesus, they were content with their lot. They were content with their portion, knowing that what they had was given to them by God, who is the giver of every good gift. Let's be clear about this much. God himself is the greatest gift. God himself is, is the greatest gift, the greatest portion that we could possibly ever ask for. And if we don't have that, if we don't have God, what does it even matter if we have the whole world? What does it matter if we have or don't have everything that we have ever wanted or felt like we needed? Think about this for a moment. If you could have either, on one hand, a billion dollars, or, on the other hand, have no money but have God, which would you choose? If you could have a dream vacation, wherever would be a dream vacation for you, or stay home and have God, which would you choose? If, if you could go to heaven for all of eternity, but Jesus wasn't going to be there with you, would you still want to go? All of this is to ask you, friends, do you want the gifts or do you want the giver of the gifts? Because there's a huge difference between those two things. David is thankful that he has at least two very important gifts from God, his counsel and his support. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. He writes, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. By the way, friends, God gives those same gifts to his children today. We have the word of God to counsel us. But more important than that, we have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who gives us understanding of God's Word. Without the Holy Spirit, we could not understand God's Word. Who counsels us, who convicts us, who corrects us, and who carries us. And we have the very promises of Jesus, who assured us that He will be with us until the end of the age. Oh, we have God's counsel as well. Let us use it. Let us make the most of it 
plumb to the depths of it as far as we can go, that we too may have this comfort that David had. So a commitment to God leads to contentment in God, which leads to confidence in God. Look at verses 9 to 11 with me. David continues writing, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So being content in the present, which is what we saw in the last part, being content with the present gives us hope for the future. David has spoken of the present blessings that he's received from God's hand, but now he looks to the future with confidence in God, knowing that God's promises for the future are both sure and secure, that there is nothing that can take place in this life that could prevent God's promises to us from being fulfilled in the future. And so he's confident about what lies ahead both in death and beyond death, because he believes God's promises are true. What we read in verses 9 and 10 shows us the confidence that Jesus had as he faced death, as he faced death on a cross, as he faced taking the wrath of God upon himself as he bore the sins of his people. What Jesus had was an amazingly strong confidence if you understand what he had to endure. It's a supernatural confidence. And, and yet, friends, we have to understand this because this is where it hits home for us. This peace, this confidence is also yours and it's also mine, even in death and beyond, if we will simply trust God that there's more that lies ahead for us than simply dying and laying in a grave and decomposing. If you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then you know that death is not final for you. Now you know that Jesus Christ himself defeated death, and that therefore death has lost its sting. You know that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is actually proof that those who die in Christ will also be raised from the dead. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52. He writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Friends, if you are in Christ, this promise is for you. If you are in Christ, therefore, you don't need to fear death, because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Death was not final for Jesus, and that's proof that death will not be final for us either. Has God made known to you this path of life that David is talking about in verse 11? He says, you'll make known to me the path of life. Has God made known to you the path of life? See, the world would have us believe that there are many paths, that each person has the right to forge their own path to life and happiness 
and contentment. But the Bible tells us, friends, that there is only one path, and that path is the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, living the life that we should have lived, being obedient to the Father's will at all times, unswervingly obedient to the Father's will. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. On the cross, he took our sin. He took the penalty of our sin. He bore the very wrath of God as our substitute in our place. Our sin was credited to him. It was transferred to him. And his righteousness in exchange was credited or transferred to us in the most beautiful demonstration of love in all of history, a love that belongs to all who will place saving faith in Christ alone. Commitment to God results in contentment in God, which gives us an ever-increasing confidence in God. Friends, do you want this happiness? Do you want this peace? Do you want this joy? You can only find it on the path of life you can only find it in Jesus Christ. So look to him and to no other with a committed, confident, believing eye and heart and all of heaven's joys, every heavenly blessing, all security in life and death. It will be yours beyond measure. And we know that to be true because God himself has promised it. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we thank you for this prophetic psalm and the way that it applies to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we can be assured that your promises are true because nobody and no thing can thwart your will. You are sovereign over all. You are all-powerful, so you can accomplish whatever you desire to accomplish. And you are good to all who believe in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy that we have in him. Thank you that you have redeemed us through the shedding of his blood. Thank you, Lord, that our sins are no longer on us, but they've been replaced with Christ's own righteousness, that we may stand before you in his righteousness rather than in our sin. And thus we know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this promise. We thank you for this assurance. We pray, Lord, that we would find this contentment, this peace as a result of our faith in you that we would weather every storm. That even in good times and bad times, we are keeping our eyes fixed on you because you alone are our strength and refuge. And we pray, Lord, that Christ would be glorified in our lives as a result of that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.